Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I like that new introduction, Panda. That feels very representative of where we've ended up. It feels like at the moment it is very much a conversation um, between us and uh, rather than a news update. Pandora, I found my lockdown spiritual twin. Her name is Tracy. She went viral on TikTok a few weeks ago with a video of her standing on her street with a megaphone shouting at her neighbours. I just want you to know that I miss you and I love you. Can't wait for this shit show to be over so that I can touch people, drink with people and have the best life ever. Big fan of Tracy. Less of a fan of you using the word viral. It has to be banned from all parlance post-pandemic. I think that's probably true. The big question of the week is, what do your bookshelves look like? Okay, can you actually, can you, I've been avoiding the news uh, the last week. Can you tell me what, I think I vaguely understood what the Ferrari was all about. Where did it begin? Politicians took pictures of their bookshelves. The Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine shared a picture I think it was of a book on her bookshelf, but you got like three shelves of her books. And the socialist writer Owen Jones retweeted it saying, have you seen what books she has on her bookshelf? Um, You know, I'm paraphrasing, he didn't say that. And then it it included a really controversial book called The Bell Curve, which um, in a nutshell suggests that white people are cleverer than other races got it so that's what i think i saw online is that that became a kind of debate of you are what you read or can you be kind of can you have books on your shelves that have ideas in them that you don't you know necessarily agree with yes got it should bookshelves be a reflection of your character or your curiosity and are those two things at odds i think what makes it what makes it thornier is that she's married to a conservative mp obviously that's michael gove's shelf so that that's what I think, you know, imbued it with with more potential meaning. I think for our line of work as writers, all I'm constantly doing is is researching experiences and viewpoints that are completely foreign to mine to help me get my work done. If you were to look at my shelves at the moment, you know, all I've read for the last six months are basically books about dementia, because it's research for my novel. You know, my memoir, I was reading a lot of literature from the 12-step programme about sex and love addicts anonymous and alcoholics anonymous. These are definitely things I have interest in, but I wouldn't say they were kind of direct 
indisputable evidence of my character or how I live or my experiences. What do you think? I think the whole debate around it actually taps into something quite interesting, which is that we have, um, in terms of discourse, we've become quite flattening with our morality, you know, good, bad, right, wrong. And so that can not leave that much space for engaging like if you step out of your tribe, if you engage with people with different ideas, dissenting opinions, or you read books by them, it kind of can be seen as a betrayal, which is, I think, quite frightening. Because I think if you don't engage with other points of view, you give them a power uh, that they shouldn't necessarily have. Uh, they become mm. kind of um, I'm not suggesting everyone should have the bell curve on their shelf. I'm really and truly not. And I, and I want to be really strict about that. And I know she had some other books that were deeply offensive to people. Um, but, what, by, but what I do mean is I don't think we should be scared to read books that we might be horrified by, but also actually curious about, like, you know, how on earth have they written a book on this point of view, for example. So just so just to be curious about what, what on earth could be within the pages, I don't think that should be an indictment on your, on your moral character. Um, no, do you know what I think it is? What are you saying that? I think what it is, is I think we're so scared of, of the wrong viewpoint now. Mm, mm. Of, of of incorrect opinion, incorrect morality, and how what that says about the fiber of who we are, and potentially even more cynically, how could how that could be used against us? I think basically proximity to offensive ideas almost feels like it could be catching. Do you know what I mean? Proximity, even I feel this a bit sometimes, like getting close. Showing a curiosity in something that I find hateful to understand it more. Or, you know, everyone has that feeling when you're on your browser and you find yourself reading something horrific that you disagree with. And it feels frightening. Even just ingesting it feels potentially toxic or feels like it could be sort of seeping into who you are and and kind of blackening the insides of you. So I think that's what we've become so scared of in terms of you know, a book is an actualization of an idea. So it feels like having it in our home is even even closer proximity to it. What's the worst book on your bookshelf, Panda? Well, aside from the fact that I have How to Stay Married by Jilly Cooper on my bookshelf, which is a <laughs> outtake from the Hilo's tour last year, I have a lot of non-fiction, which, like you were saying, was research for my book. Most offensive books on my bookshelf... I think are a few books of non-fiction. Um, I, I read and bought a lot of quite niche non-fiction when I, like you, was researching for my book. And there's a couple of books about um, victimhood written from a, that's their word, not mine, written from very conservative viewpoints that I that I still have on my shelves. Uh, I did look at my shelves yesterday and I thought... It did make me sort of think, God, you know, is this an insight into who I am? And then I and then I thought, you know what, I just think it's best. Not everyone has the same attitudes with bookshelves. A lot of people's bookshelves are books that they haven't read yet that they want to read. Other people's bookshelves are all their favourite books. So with two such different approaches to how you keep your bookshelves, one is 
an insight into who you are totally. The other is quite literally a to-do list. Um, so I think best not to overthink it, except obviously if you're going to be doing content from your home yeah. or inviting people over, then that might happen. When I lived in a flat share, we had um, our most like, prized possession was <laughs> the Sex and the City DVD box set. <laughs> and whenever one of us went on a date, we would have a code word to text back if we knew we were going to take someone home so that one of us could hide <laughs> a box set. So it was out of sight in the living room. Is, that's interesting. So is the Sex and the City box set something to be ashamed of? I think when I was in my like mid late twenties, I thought it was. Now I I don't think that's something that I would be like scared of having on display in my living room. But definitely, I think there was definitely like a period of my life where I wanted to like really fully detach myself <laughs> from my formative education of Sex in the City. Which would you rather? someone you fancied be exposed to a whole shelf of sex and the city like memorabilia and viewing content or an entire sofa full of really basic bitch slogan cushions so but first coffee <laughs> then let's make out me like i i am queen you are king um be the prince of my heart um yoga you know, yoga have- yoga bunny guilty as charged like I can't think of anything I have something worse than both of those things combined which was I think you must have seen it when you came to my flat and the first it it my ex just would not let go of it the first time he came back to my flat and saw it and and like continued to talk bring it up for months afterwards and send me pictures of it I have about 50 copies of my own book Oh, yeah, I did stub my toe on an entire box of them down by the sofa. (laughs) Which I didn't buy, but very, very kindly, my publisher sent me for some reason when my my book was published. And uh, I think that is the most embarrassing book that I have in my house. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I have an apology this week. Um, And do you know what? This is going to be my last musical apology, I think. But... Last week, you have to stop, Hand. I can't get any more of those fucking tweets from people being like, actually, here's someone looking really sexy and talented playing the triangle. (laughs) And you can look sexy and talented while playing the triangle. So, um, (laughs) listen, I'm sorry for suggesting that you couldn't jam on the clarinet. I have received some really lovely videos of people jamming on clarinets. And I think it's time I just saw the light. It is possible to jam on anything yeah I kind of want to say is it possible to jam on the bassoon but I'm not going to do it I'm not going to go there in other big news uh people seem to be very exercised about finding freedom are you very exercised what do you think I think it's all you're talking about it's all you're writing about (laughs) it's all you're thinking about (laughs) you're literally picking your cuticles you're so bored I do care about you you've written it isn't it you're one of the biographers finding freedom i do care about the mistreatment of Meghan markle in the press as i've spoken about before i think that's horrible in terms of the life that Meghan and harry have led or will continue to lead i, I keep I, i'm not being obtuse i promise 
because I know I can be a bit obtuse about things that everyone's talking about. I keep examining and I keep returning to it. Why do I give so few shits? I just don't care. I do not care at all. And I don't know why. I don't care about the young royals. I think I know what you mean. I feel uh, it's I think it's I think it's really unfair and I think it's really depressing. And I think the position they're in now and how they're behaving now is is like a direct response to that. I think often the optics, to use a a popular word right now, the optics around um, what they're doing can sometimes fall a little bit flat. Like this isn't really... I mean, it's not an autobiography, it's a biography, but ultimately, mm. like, it's been lots of sources, hasn't it? I'm guessing that they knew it was being written and that they got in touch, because I imagine they're quite controlling now about what's written about them, uh, because they're quite traumatised by everything that happened. So I imagine they got in touch and said, look, we can't speak to you personally, but we will give, you know, we'll let our nearest and dearest speak to you and we'll give them a heads up, you're coming. Mm. And then it sort of makes sure that it's like the most flattering biography possible. But I think the timing of it is not great um, uh, because people are quite anxious and also probably quite angry. Um, And also the title, I don't know about, do you know what I mean? Finding freedom. Like when you consider how much social and political and economic freedom they have, it does feel... Yeah. I get I get what the biographer's going for. They didn't name the book either, to stress this is not an autobiography. But, you know, they haven't just escaped a dictatorship. I truly just have no thoughts other than I just hope they're happy, which is such a freezing cold take. No, I honestly, I would have to force myself to read one more word about their lives. I don't understand this obsession. Like, I sometimes, most of the time, as someone who is very obsessive and who can be very nosy and voyeuristic, I can understand the intrigue around a kind of cultural phenomenon. But I just don't get it with those two. I don't understand what is left to read. To be honest, it just makes me quite depressed, the whole thing. Like, how it's all panned out. I don't think I'll be reading it either. Um, but like you say, I hope they're happy. I... Oh, I think it would be better if a biography wasn't coming up. And I don't want my disinterest in their in the details of their personal life to translators. I don't care about them, you know, particularly her mistreatment at the hands of the media. I really do, and I really do think that's a problem. Um, and I do care about about that, but I just enough now. I just don't. I just yeah, don't understand yeah, what the appetite is now. No, I know. I completely agree. It's um, it's it's also quite a nasty appetite as well, isn't it? There's something really yeah. tasteless about about it, and it can feel like they're, I don't know, being slightly hunted. Um, on a much lighter note, six weeks into lockdown, I decided to give some workouts on some online workouts on Amazon Prime ago. Oh yeah, which ones have you gone for? Found some really. Uh, funky fitness I started doing one by a man called Shazzy it's a Christian workout I didn't seek it out it came up second I was about to say really good little Catholic girl you didn't type in Christian workout Christian lunges I didn't even know a Christian like I didn't even know that religious workouts existed I mean so so what what is it what is a Christian workout so at the beginning, I think you might quite enjoy this, it tells you, it instructs you to shake what our father gave you. 
Oh my god. Then what does it say? I knew you'd like that. That's the best bit. Um, so the workouts, uh, aside from that, the only thing that really makes it a Christian workout is all the workouts are set to Christian rap music. <laughs> and, and, and they wear uh, like large crucifixes. Although I do notice that they only wear the, the three people... Uh, Shazzy and his two female cohorts, who also dance at the front with him, very colour coordinated. They only wear the crucifixes in like the, like to camera, not moving bits because they're quite hefty, right. yeah, and they could yeah. hit, hit you in the face when you're working out. Anyway, I I quite liked it actually, although the rap music was quite. I would have preferred like a something gentler, um, but I might return a, a nice kumbaya maybe. It's got to be something like upbeat, isn't it? I was looking for something Zumbery. Anyway, I'm sure now I've said that. The lovely listeners at home, as you like to call them, they are quite literally at home as well, uh, will give me some suggestions of other workout classes that uh, I can give a go. But I might go back to Shazzy and shake what my father gave me. No, that's weird. Shake what our father gave me. It's funny with those workout videos, how... I always find that I end up going back to people that I find really, really annoying. And I like, as I go to sleep every night, I hear them being like, ready? Okay, we can do this. You got this. And for some reason, you just keep going back to them because exercise is like, it's just such an annoying thing to do. I think there's something about like the the safety of the repetition and the voice you become familiar with that you end up just going like you will just go back to Shazzy now over and over again probably for the rest of your life. But also, I'm so mal coordinated. I don't know when this happened. I don't know when I, it became so entirely impossible for me to put two feet in front of the other. Um, but I honestly find it so hard keeping up with how quickly the routines like progress. So I think I need to keep going back to him because otherwise um, all my brain power is going to be eaten by trying to keep up with the routine, not actually doing like yeah, the exactly. workout. Yeah, it's really, really difficult. I have something fun for you that appeared in the Washington Post a few weeks ago, but I forgot to mention it last week. So the Washington Post has published the winning submissions to its yearly neologism contest in which readers are asked to supply alternative meanings for common words. I think you'll really like some of these winners. Coffee. Person upon whom one coughs. (laughs) Abdicate. To give up all hope of ever having a flat stomach. (laughs) Oh, this one's good. Esplanade to attempt an explanation while drunk. <laughs> I know that one well. Negligent describes a condition in which you absentmindedly answer the door in your nightgown. And then the Washington Post's Style Invitational uh, asked readers to take any word from the dictionary and alter it by adding or subtracting or changing one letter and supplying a new definition. The winners are bozone substance surrounding stupid people that stops bright ideas from penetrating (laughs) the bozone layer unfortunately shows little sign of breaking down in the near future oh i love that sarcasm so they've added an h here the gulf between the author of sarcastic wit and the person who doesn't get it 
aka all of Twitter. And then a T has been added to inoculate to turn it into inoculate, to take coffee intravenously when you are running late. Okay, this is quite funny. Carmageddon. It's like when everybody is sending off all these really bad vibes and then the earth explodes and it's like a serious bummer. I love that. Pandra, are you conversant with the new lockdown lingo? Have you read about this? Inform me. We have Corona Coaster, the ups and downs of your mood during the pandemic. You're loving lockdown one minute, but suddenly weepy with anxiety the next. It truly is an emotional Corona Coaster. Quarantinis, experimental Ooh, cocktails yeah. mixed from whatever random ingredients you have left in the house. The boozy equivalent of a store cupboard supper. Southern Comfort and Ribena Quarantini with a glacé cherry garnish, anyone? These are sipped at locktail hour, i.e. wine o'clock during lockdown, which seem to be creeping earlier with each passing week. I bet you like locktail hour. That's a good one. I do. There's also furlough merlot, wine consumed in an attempt to relieve the frustration of not working, also known as bored o or cabernet tedium. (laughs) (laughs) Corona dose, an overdose of bad news from consuming too much media during a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. Can result in panic-demic. <laughs> the elephant in the Zoom, the glaring issue during a video conferencing call that nobody feels able to mention. E.g. one participant has suddenly sprouted terrible facial hair or has a worryingly messy house visible in the background. Quentin Quarantino. An attention seeker using their time in lockdown to make amateur films, which they're convinced are funnier <laughs> and cleverer than they actually are. I am a whisker away from becoming that person, FYI. Isn't that the whole premise of TikTok? I've still actually never downloaded TikTok. Yeah. But it, that, yeah. yeah, okay, right, good to know. Gout break, the sudden fear that you've consumed so much wine, cheese, homemade cake and Easter chocolate in lockdown that your ankles are swelling up like a medieval king's. I actually know someone that got gout after a cheesy holiday. It's not as far away as you think it is. And finally, anti-social distancing, using health precautions as an excuse for snubbing neighbours and generally ignoring people you find irritating. That's hilarious. I bet there's some of that going on. So on my high-low notes for this week, Dolly, I have written Snoop Dogg. I have not a clue (laughs) why I've written that, which is annoying. Do you have any idea why I've written down Snoop Dogg? I actually do know what this is about. How do you know this? Because I thought, I'm going to ask Dolly because I'll have written it down. I will have written it down for a reason. But there is no way on earth that Dolly is going to know what my Snoop Dogg... What's my Snoop Dogg note about? So you wrote it down for a very, very good reason. And the only reason I know about it is because my friends in TV who work in TV development (laughs) have all been talking about it this week. Basically, Ian I know what it is. I know what it is now. Ian Katz, who's head of Channel 4, has made the announcement that there's a programme that has been commissioned called Snoop Dogg. Uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not specific if it's, if it's a Corona commission, but it feels like it is a Corona commission. Mm, it because does. It's like, because it's a show that can be made with no crew. So basically, celebrity dogs are rigged up with a camera. <laughs> God knows where, probably on their, their heads. And the celebrity dog does you know, spends the day in the celebrity house and gets all this footage of the celebrity house and the viewer has to guess who the house belongs to and then it's revealed who the house belongs to at the end. So it's kind of like a through the keyhole, but through through the eyes of a dog. And I also, <laughs> I've also been told that apparently the other working title for it was Beagles About. 
No, Snoop Dogg's much better. So it's sort of like a Cribs by a Golden Doodle. Precisely. Yeah, that that does feel like a lockdown commission. And I've now realised where I got this from. It was from a, a Zoom I had yesterday where someone suggested that telecommissioning might be reaching peak. It, I might, mean, it might have almost started to eat itself. God knows what, what ideas are being thrown around in those, <laughs> those TV development Zooms at the moment. Well, there is also a big gap in this year's summer schedule because Love Island's not going ahead. Admirably, I mean, I would have thought that would be obvious, right? But they were actually really trying to find a way in which it could happen. They were talking about how they'd fly everyone out and they'd all like self-isolate for two weeks. And then, I mean, I don't know, it felt, I feel like it's actually not necessarily the year for it, really, in light of everything else that's happened actually as well. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would have thought it would have seemed quite obvious that wasn't going ahead. But actually, they, they only very recently threw in the towel on trying to make it happen. Well, there are going to be these just like massive gaps in scheduling, like Wimbledon, Edinburgh Festival. I'm so sad about that. I'm, re- I'm really interested to see how they're, how they're going to fill those slots. Speaking of TV, I hate that I'm bringing it up again, but I have to bring it up again. Tiger King, have you seen the news? Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage will be playing Joe Exotic. So good, that casting, isn't it? It, it is good casting, they do, but how, how much are so we So they're making seeing? a film about the documentary? They're making a TV miniseries, which is a dramatised version of, of... In fact, they didn't say it was the documentary's events. I think, I think the kind of intellectual property that they're basing it on is an article, like a deep dive report into the, into yeah, the life of Joe was, Exotic. Yeah, New York Magazine did one uh, on him last year. I think that might have... Actually, it couldn't have been before Netflix commissioned it. But yes, New York Magazine did a did a long read on it, which some people have said, if you're curious about Tiger King, but you can't face the series, that long read, you can read it online, I, I read it a couple of weeks ago, I think, that long read is like quite a good, you know, way of hitting the spot without having to watch a fairly depressing series. Speaking of telly we've already watched, I shot my load early last week when we talked about normal people because I'd only watched two episodes and I finished it last night. I really eked it out, actually, and land sakes of gosh and I am in awe of it. Mm. So incredibly moving and sad and the the chemistry between those two leads, I've, I've almost... I've almost never seen chemistry like that. I, I can't believe they're not together in real life. And I know that sounds like a really ridiculous thing to say. Like, obviously, if you're a good actor, you're able to do a sexy scene on TV. God, there were a lot of sexy scenes, weren't there? Yeah, yeah. A lot of sexy scenes. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, there was some sex on the screen. And that's all me and my representatives are going to say about that. Um, I think its lasting legacy is going to be Connell's necklace. Yeah, buff. The American website, The Cut, wrote an entire piece about a snapshot of Connell's neck featuring the necklace, which seemed quite extreme, I thought, until I received a press release yesterday telling me where I could buy the hottest accessory of lockdown. (laughs) 
<laughs> For anyone who hasn't seen normal people, by the way, it's literally just like a plain, it's a plain silver necklace. I love a plain silver necklace on a matter, a plain silver chain. I think it's very fit. Yeah, the whole of the world apparently agreed with you, according to this mm. press release. And from silver chains to golden opportunities. God, I'm good. I wanted to flag a writing competition uh, while we're in lockdown because we often get emails from listeners who want to get into journalism asking for advice. And I always have said that competitions are a great, great way of giving your career a, a boost early on. They feel kind of more egalitarian than a lot of the, the traditional media hiring processes. And even if it goes nowhere, the worst thing that can happen is that you write a piece of work that you're proud of and that you work hard on. If that doesn't get selected, you can then use it as a calling card elsewhere or you can kind of, you can pitch it as a piece elsewhere. So this is the Sunday Times AA Gill Award who say, we are looking for a piece of writing on the subject of a restaurant or the memory of a restaurant experience, including service, atmosphere and wine, or the wider subject of food by delivery or takeaway. Entries must be between 1,000 and 1,200 words, and the competition is open to anyone over 21 who is not employed as a food writer or restaurant critic and does not earn their main revenue from food or restaurant writing. The article they submit must be previously unpublished. In honour of A.A. Gill's dyslexia, entries will not be judged on spelling or grammar. The winner will receive a prize of £5,000 and their review will be published in The Dish, the food section of the Sunday Times magazine. Runner-up and third place will receive a prize of £500 and £250 respectively. Entries close on Tuesday, May the 26th and you can enter at aagill.award at sunday-times.co.uk. And there was another writing scheme that I wanted to mention. Obviously, not all of our listeners are writers or anything like that, but we do get a lot of questions about starting out in writing. And this is a brilliant scheme that aims to diversify voices in publishing. Right Now is a programme from the publisher Penguin that aims to find, mentor and publish new writers from underrepresented communities, including BAME writers, writers with disabilities and writers from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds. We've actually talked about a book I adored last year, I think it was, that was published by Penguin through this very scheme. It's called A Love Story for Bewildered Girls by Emma Morgan. And actually just talking about it has reminded me all over again how much I loved it. Cannot recommend this book enough it's for fans of a girl's guide to hunting and fishing by melissa bank and fans of david nichols as well i think we'll really enjoy it right now starts with just a thousand words and it can span any genre including non-fiction and children's books you can find out more at penguin.co.uk forward slash right now w-r-i-t-e-n-o-w the deadline is the 31st of may we will link that in the showies I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. everyone who wrote in after last week's show when we dug into the mailbag I particularly loved this letter that I wanted to read because it also 
relates to a recommendation I'm going to be talking about in a bit. I'm a 42-year-old father of eight-year-old twin girls who has listened to you for years now. I hope one day to listen with them. Aww. So, can I ask a favour? You sometimes joke about your lack of male listeners. I'm a proud listener and I'm certain you welcome all listeners of any sex, race, sexuality and creed. The world will be a better place if more men listen to the Hilo, so please encourage and draw in other men whenever you can, rather than giving even the slightest hint that we're outsiders. Thank you very much to this lovely man who wrote in, because it is a reminder to me to not always joke about our lack of male listeners and potentially make them feel alienated and be very grateful that we have all different types of people coming to listen to our rambling bollocks and we're very very happy to have any ears on us so thank you what have you been enjoying this week doll I read an utterly fascinating and personally quite mind-altering article in the New Inquiry by Indiana Saracen, which actually was published in October, but I saw last week, I think, that Otega Awagba flagged it on Twitter. And it's really, really made me think. It's an article on heteropessimism. Uh, and she begins by defining what this term means. Heteropessimism consists of performative disaffiliations with heterosexuality, usually expressed in the form of regret, embarrassment or hopelessness about straight experience. Heteropessimism generally has a heavy focus on men as the root of the problem. That these disaffiliations are performative does not mean that they are insincere, but rather that they are rarely accompanied by the actual abandonment of heterosexuality. She goes on to talk about how heteropessimism has thrived on the internet thanks to meme culture, which I certainly am guilty of. And I also think I'm guilty of it for... It's it's sort of a manifestation of my longing to feel close with other women, I think. And women who I deem to be free-thinking via a kind of gallows humour of a shared experience... Social media, as we know, is is so much about sort of clubs and the wearability of one's identity and opinions and politics. And I think disappointment with heterosexuality is such a uniting club for women, irrespective of background or age or ethnicity or sexuality, bad date stories or bad app experiences or on the much more serious you know, end of that experience spectrum, experiences with abusive behaviour. You know, all those things, it's like an equator that goes through all female experience. So really, when I was reading this article, I was thinking about, because I'm definitely someone who sort of quite actively spreads heteropessimism, I think. Um, certainly in a lighthearted way most of the time, but I really did think about why it is that I do that. And I think that that pull to that kind of equator of experience, as I said, to the pull to discuss it or make fun of it, I think is a way of unifying me with other women. That's such an interesting term. When you first started talking about it, it sounded really complicated. And when you continue to explain what it was and how prevalent it is in meme culture, I now explain it. it it's sort of an academic way of talking about something that most of us are very familiar with. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested by the use of pessimism as well. Um, I think that's quite a clever word. It's a bit more gentle than a lot of the discourse we hear around cultural criticism at the moment, isn't it? Like, it's it's less... 
don't know, less condemnatory. And the reason why pessimism is an interesting word is that there's something interesting in heterosexuality that so many women are embarrassed or ashamed of their heterosexuality. And yet sexuality, as we know, is is something that that one can't help. So most heterosexual people who are, who are kind of disappointed in the heterosexual experience continue to actively be heterosexual. So that's the kind of contradiction that she's really looking at within this article. Does heteropessimism... Um fetishize queer culture yes and she herself isn't a straight woman and she's incredibly patient when she's writing about this but she talks about that kind of trope of the straight girl thing of sitting in a gay bar or sitting with a gay woman and saying oh I just wish I was gay my life would be so much easier and Madonna and Britney kissing at the VMAs that's always the like pop culture moment that I think of yeah, and she's she's like incredibly unjudgmental about that in her writing. And she really wants to understand why this is a kind of ennui that, that so many heterosexual women face. She goes on to talk about heteropessimism being employed by women as a kind of protective mechanism. She says, heteropessimism is, to borrow Lee Edelman's phrase, an anaesthetic feeling, a feeling that aims to protect against overintensity of feeling and an attachment that can survive detachment. Heteropessimism's anaesthetic effect is especially seductive because it disassociates women from the very traits, overattachment and the overintensity of feeling for which straight culture is determined to make us ashamed. This I found really, really fascinating because I suppose this is more of a psychological dig into what is commonly called the kind of cool girl agenda. And there is a traditional trope in heterosexuality of the woman being a nag, of a woman attaching more quickly than the man, a woman craving commitment uh, more than a man does, or a woman being smothering. And really, when you think about why that stereotype might have come about, I suppose it would have been because of the way our society was set up. Historically, marriage was not a lifestyle choice for women. It was a method of survival. When financial Mm. security or freedom wasn't available to us, marriage was the only option for a safe and comfortable life. Now that is no longer the case. It it does feel inevitable reading her reading her kind of persuasive argument that a heteropessimistic declaration might feel like redress or even retribution. That the cool girl thing, the resistance to be dependent on a man now, is a stance of autonomy and is a pushback on an oppression that has been felt so deeply by our ancestors for so, so long. Because I definitely do do that self-protective thing. And actually reading this, it, <laughs> reading this reminded me of something my ex said to me once, where he said, there is nothing, <laughs> nothing more codependent than a woman on a first date repeatedly telling him of how independent she is and how much she doesn't need a man and how much she doesn't want a boyfriend. (laughs) Which is definitely my seduction style. I think as well that opens up quite an interesting conversation as well about how when the pendulum swings, it can become a new bind. It's so essential that we have these conversations um, into how different people live and should be allowed to live and that they should be able to make all these choices without shame but you can sometimes see it kind of then going away from redressing to um 
there being a sense of shame if you make quite a conventional and kind of historically approved, socially approved choice. Now, I've had a few people expressing disappointment in the yeah. fact that I chose to get married. Um, and I can totally understand that marriage is not for everyone and it should not be for everyone. But I also think it's a bit of a regression if you go from marriage being the only option for women to them being an option that women are ashamed of you have to kind of enter into a union or not enter into a union for reasons other than shame yeah and that's definitely a stance that I've taken in the past that I now feel a bit embarrassed about where I I, there was definitely a period of my life where I thought that entering into the institution of marriage however thoughtfully was in was in complete opposition with like feminist ideals and actually what I realize now is that is that is a deeply misogynistic (laughs) attitude because it's basically saying that a woman is trapped or not trapped and now in between (laughs) it's basically saying that a woman has no right for independent thought within Within a marriage within traditional structures yeah and actually actually what she says something very interesting about so if we're calling heteropessimism like an online subculture, which is how she how she describes it, online subcultures have to be in opposition to mainstream choices in a mainstream market, a, def- a default lifestyle. And often an online subculture is framed as a kind of anti-capitalist positioning. And I think because heterosexuality is still so closely linked to heteronormativity heterosexuality if you're being lazy about it we know that there are lots and lots of people who live heterosexual lives who have rejected heterosexual norms like most most couples i know look at the traditions of a marriage or the traditions of a relationship how labor is divided how the household works you know raising children and they're rewriting the rules that maybe our grandparents couldn't but for some reason, heterosexuality, there's still this idea that it means conforming and not being thoughtful about choices and therefore kind of acquiescing to a type of life that allows misogynistic values to thrive. So actually, I think a lot of heteropessimism in women is an involuntary expression of our sort of longing for individualism and autonomy. But we express it through a disdain of heterosexuality. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think there is a lot that's quite questionable about the institution of marriage or the kind of marital ceremony. And that, you know, that's for someone who is is happily and shamelessly. Shameless isn't a nice word, but what I mean is I don't have shame about the fact I chose to get married. But, um, you know, it is quite discomforting that in most marital ceremonies, the woman wears white um, and her father gives her away. And, you know, there are so many things about it that I hate the word problematic because it feels like it's been really overused, doesn't it? But like there are lots of you can be married and still see conflict within the institution. And equally, I would not be surprised at all if someone said to me, I don't understand marriage. I don't want to ever get married. Where I think we need to be careful is that it then doesn't become an indictment of any woman that has chosen to get married. I haven't read the article, but I think it sounds like what she's saying is kind of yet again we're being faced with the obstacle of 
respecting other people's choices whilst we choose to make different ones and how that can manifest as a kind of like performative disgust maybe yes and it ends with this thought which is the thing that's really stuck with me and made me think a bit more about how I speak about about straightness for a long time heterosexuality's normalization allowed it to endlessly repeat immune from any substantial change Today, heteropessimism might actually obscure the extent to which heterosexuality is changing, even as it is also causing it. Without an immutable object of critique, the logic of heteropessimism falls apart. Perversely, this has created a renewed investment in the, cons- in the consistency of heterosexuality, a reinscription of heterosexuality's tired features, even as this investment takes the disguised form of negative feeling. In this light, heteropessimism reveals something about the way we can remain secretly attached to the continuity of the very things we sincerely decry as toxic, boring or broken. Faced with the possibility of disappointment, anaesthesia can feel like a balm. It just sort of blew my mind, that final sentence. The idea that there is a collective resistance against a new and changing type of heterosexuality that we know exists. Like, I, as I say, I see, it in, I see it in my friends' relationships and I've seen it in my relationships. But how much the idea that she said that we almost want to cling on to the, our understanding of how heterosexuality used to function... Because if we were to hope for a new type of heterosexuality, we could end up being very hurt and disappointed. So that's sort of something that could be said about a lot of progression, right? That it's exactly. too it's too scary to contemplate how progression could be disappointing. So it's better to rail against the systems than change them. But you see that, yeah. don't you, a lot with um, how furious people get about many elements of our culture at the moment um and so kind of criticizing it and railing against it uh and bitching about it does become easier than looking to change it which i by the way i'm i'm not saying that as someone who's who's changing anything structurally just like there's a lot of things that we love to hate and i'm wondering if we love to hate them because changing them is you know more terrifying yeah, because it makes us vulnerable to hope, even if you're not going to change it, if you want to participate in a changing culture, that makes you very vulnerable. To hope is a very vulnerable place. And mm. honestly, I, I really, it really did make me think because a lot of my work and my writing and my humour is soaked in heteropessimism. And soaked is a lovely word, isn't it? It, it just really made me think about, about what that does for a collective conversation about what what my role is within that sorry role that sounds very grandiose I'm a a tiny insignificant voice but all these tiny insignificant voices whether it's in the pub or whether it's in a journalism in a magazine or whether it's things you're saying on a podcast or things you're tweeting it all collectively adds to a school of thought I think the key thing is now that I'm going to be much more thoughtful about moving forward is positivity movements be that sex positivity or body positivity the idea of doing exactly what we were just talking about, the idea of hoping for a different world and actively participating in changing the world, changing language, changing culture. Um, that's a wonderful thing and that's a necessary thing. I think that what becomes sometimes a bit dangerous is that 
within those positivity movements, there also has to be space for residual pessimism, I believe. There still has to be, for the people who have been oppressed or continue to feel oppressed by something, they should be allowed the space to share those experiences or those frustrations or to make jokes about those experiences and frustrations. That should be able to exist as well as a positivity movement that strives for a more accepting and positive and healthy culture for everyone. What have you been reading, Panda? I bought a manual for heartache, How to Feel Better by Kathy Rensenbrink, because I thought it might help me help someone I love. But as soon as I started reading it, I realised that actually this is a book that can help everyone. And I wanted to explain why. The book definitely sits within the canon of grief lit, quote unquote. By that, I mean books that help people who are grieving. And Kathy wrote it off the back of The Last Act of Love, an incredibly moving memoir that she published in 2015, I think, about the death of her brother, Matty, who was hit by a car aged 17. And A Manual for Heartache is a book about how she healed, because it it really came out of a reader response to her memoir. She said a lot of readers asked her how she managed to put herself back together after her brother's death and um, periods of depression. And Kathy said she didn't want to recommend her memoir to people in pain because it's a very sad story and people in great pain aren't really able or shouldn't shouldn't have to take on someone's extremely sad story, she says. But the book is much more than grief lit, which is what the canon of um, books written about grief is often called. It's life lit. And Kathy's keen to stress early on in the book that this is a broad book. It is, she says, for anyone who feels heartache or heartbreak. Anyone, she says heartbreak is the moment at which it happens and heartache is the residual kind of like the vibrations around the earthquake. And she said it's for anyone who's experienced a grenade moment. And she describes a grenade moment as, amongst other things, an accident, a diagnosis or a discovery. This is what she writes for someone who's just had that grenade moment, which is obviously in the shock and shattering depths of of that pain. What I now wish someone had told me is this. Life will never be the same again. The old one is gone and you can't have it back. What you might at some point be able to encourage yourself to do, and time will be an ally in this, is work out how to adjust to your new world. You can patch up your raggedy heart and start thinking and feeling your way towards how you want to live. That's what I wish someone had told me, and that's what I want to tell you. I think I'm finally doing it. There is a world on the other side of the guillotine. It's not the one you know, and the undamaged version of you is lost in time. But there is a life to explore, and a new version of you is waiting to walk into it. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's very moving, isn't it? Mm. It's a really simple and incredibly moving and thoughtful book. She's an amazing writer. I also wanted to read a bit that I think is actually really valuable for people to be reading right now. I was struck when I was reading it by how much it could help people feeling overwhelmed. A lot of the time in the book, she writes about something that's not specific. It's about feeling lost and it's about loss and it's about feeling overwhelmed. And... I think this could be really helpful to people, a lot of people who are feeling really overwhelmed at this time. I wanted to read a short passage on that. 
Is modern life rubbish? Certainly it's full of luxuries and challenges that our forebears could not have begun to imagine. I like to picture my cave people ancestors sitting around a fire. The stresses they were exposed to were considerable, no doubt, but they didn't have all the cruelty of the world only a click away. They weren't able to see the last texts people sent their mums when they knew they were about to die, or watch the final moments of a man shot by police and hear his girlfriend's sobs as the life drained out of him. They didn't have social media with its bright lights administering bursts of dopamine to frazzled brains. They didn't have the noise, the sense of overwhelm or people popping up to tell them they were pointless or untalented or trashy or wrong. We are not designed to have all of this delivered into our hands on a screen that we carry around with us and which is always on. Looking back at the times in my life when I broke down, I see that watching the Twin Towers fall again and again and gluing myself to reports of houses being washed away in Japanese floods were contributing factors to my disintegrating state of mind. It seems ghastly to refuse to bear witness to other people's tragedy because I'm such a delicate flower, but I have to see that it does the world no good if I can't manage to live in it. Very important for now, that sentiment. I don't think what she's saying is that we should blinker ourselves to all of the news. Absolutely, we should not forget the fact that so many people lost their lives in the tragedy that is the Twin Towers. I think what she is saying is that when you feel at a very low ebb and you quite literally don't know how to move through this world or live in this life, the worst thing you can do is overlay that with other stories of tragedy. Uh, And she has a lot of really pragmatic advice about how to step away during that time and how to kind of rebuild yourself so you're, you know, you're more able to engage with the world. Dolly, what's something you've enjoyed this week? If anyone needs to pick me up, they should listen to the latest episode of the Adam Buxton podcast, obviously. Louis Theroux is a guest who always, in my opinion, gives the most brilliant episodes. And this one just made me laugh so much. They talk about their different interviewing styles. They talk about lockdown life and domestic squabbles. Louis Theroux talks about his time with Joe Exotic pre-Tiger King. Everyone's desperate to hear his opinion on it, aren't they? Because he obviously met him a while ago. And now I think all people tweet him as being like, but what's he really like? What's he really like? Yeah, yeah. His insight's very interesting. And they also have a really great conversation about the Beatles and about when they came to the Beatles and how their I think everyone's got their own kind of relationship with the Beatles, particularly particularly kids of boomers, I think. Adam Buxton talks about how he resisted the Beatles for a long time because it was just the music that his mum loved, which is definitely something I identify with. And there's a lovely moment as well where uh, both of them talk about passing on music now to their children, um, which is lovely. And lots of sort of geeky discussions about the politics within the Beatles between Lennon and McCartney, which I just loved. But the bit that I wanted to insert is Louis slightly apologising to Adam Buxton about stomping all over his territory because he now has his own podcast. I'm aware that I'm sort of Pissing on your patch. Quite right. And using your microphone, if I can (laughs) mix the metaphor, I'm pissing out of your microphone onto your leg and saying, okay, little doggy, it's time for the big doggies to play. Run along now. Exactly. (laughs) Which is not an ideal position to be in with a close friend, but it's coronavirus time. We, We have to make a living.
Presumably some of those so people that you spoke to. And, so you, and the horse you rode in on. Newsflash. I will. <laughs> You've had um, this stage to yourself for long enough. It's time for a real broadcaster to show you how to do it. All right, fair enough. Louis Threw is all over the uh, old iTunes at the moment, isn't he? Can we also insert, because I think it is still my favourite podcast moment of all time, when he sings on the Adam Buxton podcast. For anyone who hasn't listened to this episode yet, it is absolutely guaranteed to put a smile on your face. You know, I don't have a strong voice, but I've got this weird thing where I'm quite comfortable in the falsetto uh, range. Oh, really? So that I can... Um, yeah, I like a bit of falsetto. I'm much more comfortable and I feel that my vo- I'm totally in command of my instrument. <laughs> How high do you go? Uh, not as high as I used to, but... <clears throat> I'd rather have an actual song. Um... Well, what's your... Do you do falsetto when you do karaoke? Well, I do, yes. What's, I do... Um, what's your go-to karaoke? It's Baccarat, um, yes. yes, Sir, I Can Boogie. Uh-huh. Do you know it? Sure. Have a go. Oh, yes, sir, I can boogie. Yeah. But I need a... Southern song, I, I can, can boogie, 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 <laughs> all night long. Oh, yes, sir, I can boogie, <laughs> but I need a Southern song, I can boogie, boogie, woogie. It's a very clean, it's a very clean sound. I also wanted to mention a book I read during our leave, which has just come out. I realise it's really annoying if I keep talking about books that aren't out yet. So I'm trying to time my talking about them a little bit better with the release date. So it's just come out. It's a debut book by the CNN reporter Francis Cha called If I Had Your Face, set in contemporary Seoul. And it's told through a group of 20-something women. Ara is a hairstylist who loses the ability to speak after a violent attack in her teenagehood and she is obsessed with a k-pop star Hyuri has undergone vast amounts of plastic surgery to make her face resemble what she thinks is the kind of archetypal beautiful woman and she works in something called a room salon which is where young beautiful women pour drinks for wealthy men sometimes um, partaking in prostitution Miho is Kyuri's roommate. She's an artist from an impoverished background dating a very rich man called Hanbin, who appears much nicer than he is. And Wana, who was physically abused by her grandmother when she was younger, is now pregnant with her husband and her child and is debating whether or not she wants to bring a child into this society. I am really interested in the culture that she writes about. It, it feels very extreme um, to read about for us. Like, obviously, we know that in Western culture, um, plastic surgery is rife, and that you know, pop stars have big, big audiences. But in Seoul, it takes on like actually quite a terrifying paradigm. Like, pla- extreme plastic surgery is so normalised there. Like, Francis writes a lot about jaw shaving and your jaws being, like, where your jaw is literally broken. Uh, eyelid surgery. Um, and then K-pop, which is something I'm riveted by, um, is is quite a dark spectre. It's kind of got this incalculable 
cultural impact. And if you've ever read about how K-pop stars are manufactured in sort of like labs and they're often chosen at like the age of 10 and they live their whole um, kind of teen puberty in these like labs becoming these pop stars, they have no life outside of these boy groups or girl groups they're not allowed to date um i actually read a guardian long read recently on a k-pop boy band member i'll see if i can find that and link that in the show notes it's a really interesting part of uh south korean culture the book is quite jarring to read it's there isn't really a plot um as such and i'm not especially bothered by plot so i don't mind that i love kind of seeing uh soul through the eyes of these female characters i would have liked a bit more a bit more depth and a bit more interior monologue and a bit more of an understanding of what brings them together as friends many of them have really dark or complicated backstories which are which are left quite unshaded but I do think it's a really brilliant debut and it doesn't pander to its western audience which I don't think it should incidentally but that's a charge that has been leveled against different pieces of fiction such as American Dirt for instance by Janine Cummings Um, and I think it's a really interesting insight into the beauty industry in Asia which is very much considered to like lead the way in terms of um, you know this sort of skin cream formulations or um like youth advancing creams and things like that and it it does feel like there does feel this pressure to be young and beautiful on 20 somethings in Seoul does feel much more extreme than in London although of course that's just a that's just a personal observation but it's a really interesting debut it's quite bleak but super interesting that does sound very interesting and something that I I'd like to learn more about Any other recommendations, Panda? One podcast recommendation. It's called Culture Call and it was created by the Financial Times last summer and it's a female two-hander hosted by the arts editor Griselda Murray-Brown in London and Lila Raptopoulos who works on the marketing side for the Financial Times in their New York office. It's every other week and I really enjoy their smart take on culture whether that's about Lizzo or climate change. They've also featured some of my favourite writers like Gia Tolentino and Taffy Bredessa Ackner. I really love the way it crosses the Atlantic. So I feel like you get like a nice hit of that. And then it's also got uh, the British culture as well. And they have guests like Esther Perel, who is obviously brilliant. So if you're looking for a new culture podcast, I very much recommend Culture Call. time for ask the hilo thank you so much as ever for your questions and queries and dilemmas i'm going to kick off with a career question i've recently started what i thought was my dream job however a year on and i just feel like there is so much more to life i feel like i have no purpose and my dream job sucks the life out of me i love caring for people animals and doing good i feel like there is a greater cause out there for me to commit my career to however i have not a clue what it is Pandora, any words of wisdom? Oh my God, I always feel a little bit cold and shivery when career advice comes up. I don't think I'm a very good career advisor. Um, (laughs) I think it sounds like she's gone some way to answering her own question there, where she says, I love caring for people and animals and doing good. Um, She doesn't say what her current job is, but if, if she's not already working in this sphere, from what she says about, 
her passions it seems to me like what would make sense is to um go work for a charity or a volunteer program not as a volunteer necessarily although of course that's something lovely still on the side because it sounds like you know she needs a job that pays money but to work for a charity or for a volunteer scheme or uh what do you reckon doll do you know what i think sometimes we forget that we have lots of different facets to our personalities and we have lots of different interests and we have lots of different things that excite us. Some of them are more surfacey, some of them are more soulful, some of them are more philanthropic, some of them are more aesthetic. Um, and it's very, very rare that you can get a job that fulfills every single part of who you are and all the various interests and longings that you have. What I would say is if you know, quitting your job and starting again or jumping into a new sector, that not only takes a huge amount of bravery, that normally takes a, a massive amount of financial security. And I would be very, very cautious about making a big leap, particularly if, if you are in a job that you have for a long time thought is your dream job. And you don't say you hate your job. You're saying you're yearning for something more, that you're yearning for more fulfillment. You don't need to just get that from your career. And a person who I'm going to talk about, who I'm so, so proud of, um, who I've seen go through this exact same quandary that you're going through, is one of my best friends. And I'm not going to name her because she is very modest and will <laughs> get very embarrassed that I'm gushing about her like this. She was in ostensibly her dream job. And she, you know, was climbing the ladder and she was very stimulated and it stimulated a certain part of who she was. There was a big part of her that felt unfulfilled and that was the part of her that wanted to connect to people and wanted to help people. So she decided to do some volunteering and in the evenings and at the weekends. And then she decided to train to be a Samaritan. I'm not saying that this is the right answer for everyone. It's a massive undertaking and not something to be taken lightly. And there's a long process to do it. But she now does Samaritan shifts every month. And she's a part of this community. And she has this kind of second job. And she has said to me that originally her big question was exactly what you're asking should I just be starting again with a career should I be jacking in this thing that I've been doing for 10 years and just going into the charity sector or a sector that kind of engages more with this other side of who I am and actually having a space in her life where she does this outside of her job has acted as a sort of yin to the yang of her day job and has kind of equalized her interests and it's given her a great sense of purpose and as I said, that that might not be for everyone, but that is an option. And I know that that's a choice that she made that she's really, really happy with. That is such a good point you make. And I feel quite embarrassed, actually, for suggesting immediately, oh, you should go work for an animal charity. Because no, not what, at all. No, but you're, all. Abs you're absolutely right, actually. And I think it's really important to have my sort of knee-jerk response followed by yours. Because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, hold on. I love people and I love animals and I don't, you know, I don't work for a charity or a volunteer programme and Dolly loves people and Dolly really loves animals and she doesn't. So you're right. I think this idea that a job must be the distillation of all of our greatest passions is, isn't really right, actually. And I'm literally thinking about my own, my own job as I say that and how there are facets of my life and what I love that 
are absolutely not a part of my job and and that doesn't feel like a loss that's sort of a compartmentalization um so i think you're right i think making a making a career move right now is extremely risky f- for most people financially so that is really yeah. something to consider isn't it but also you can love people and you can love animals and it doesn't have to be part of your day job obviously if your day job is working in an abattoir then loving animals is quite <laughs> difficult but I think the percentage of people that work in an abattoir who love animals is probably quite small um so basically listen to what Dolly said not me because that was really wise I did lots of thinking about my own career as well thanks and the other thing that I would say is something my mum often says to me is you know it's called work for a reason (laughs) if if you if you it's, it's a job for a reason if if you in this life manage to have a job that engages one of your interests or some of your skill set you've won the jackpot because the majority of humans on this earth that's not how they feel when they go to work every day so there's not a day in my life that goes by where I'm not entirely grateful that I have a job that not only you know engages a fair amount of my interest it's also just a job I don't hate and that's something we should feel very thankful for Next one from me. I'm quite invested in this one. I am extremely keen to hear your thoughts on Too Hot to Handle, the new Netflix reality romance romp. God, that's a lot of alliteration. The basic premise is it's Love Island, but they're not allowed to shift or shag. Shift? I don't know what that means. Is that another word for doing bits? Shift? Am I really out the loop? Is it a typo? I thought it said you're not allowed to shit or shag. You're definitely allowed to shit. It's absolute trash and I am obsessed and would love to hear what you think. So, I'm guessing you haven't watched this, Dolly. No. So, Too Hot to Handle is... I don't like calling anything trash, as it sounds quite patronising, but it does definitely reside in a... uh, a certain canon of television. Um, And it... (laughs) I found it a lot better than that other absolutely ridiculous Netflix show where they can't see each other and then have to get married. What was that one that we spoke about recently? Love is Blind? Love is Blind. I mean, I think that, to be fair, this at least has a premise, which is quite often people shag before getting to really know each other and then never see each other again. Because I don't actually believe that whole like, oh, if you have sex before the third date, then you'll never enter into a relationship and you're just a big old slut. I don't believe that. But I think I think the concept of suspending sex from a show is quite interesting. Um, whereas Love is Blind made absolutely no sense to me. I don't think you can marry someone before ever seeing what they look like. I don't think that we should be willingly putting ourselves into a situation where you have like a sort of blind arranged marriage anyway so I think there was quite an interesting premise with Too Hot to Handle but it was like it was so similar to Love Island um they'd just taken away the sex and no one's participants are like supremely horny oh my god they literally kept on being like oh my god this is like the look after a week this is the longest I've gone without sex mate like oh god (laughs) can you believe this and I was like I think I think there might be some people who can who can believe that, you know, <laughs> just, you know, just there might be. Um, so it was kind of hilarious because they had deliberately gathered like some absolute horn dogs. Um, but I don't think it was complete trash. Uh, d- definitely like I do worry that the post Love Island 
commissioning might be I don't know like how many shows do we need of like horny very hot 20 somethings on an island actually actually maybe the answer to that is we need ad infinitum what do you think do you uh, maybe maybe we should be making shows like castaway again where they all wore what was it 20 years ago ben fogel they all wore like woolly jumpers and they went and lived on an island in scotland for a year see that does make me horny actually (laughs) no truly i find that much hornier that's so much hornier for me than how many times have you say horny in one sentence (laughs) i think it's the aaron knit oh the cot oh the collie dog dolly the collie dolly. Right, this is going downhill. Last question, Dolly, you take this one. My question is, how often do you give up on a book? I'm ploughing through the latest Hilary Mantel after loving Wolf Hall and bringing up the bodies, but this is so long. I'm really struggling. <laughs> I'm almost halfway, so in some ways it feels like a waste to give up now, but I also don't have endless hours to spare. Pandora. I had a real awakening moment when I read an interview with Marianne Keys in the... I think it's the Guardian's review yeah. magazine on Saturday. I loved that interview. Yeah, she was, I think it that went quite widespread, didn't it? Because it was a really kind of gorgeous refute of being ashamed that you haven't read anything or for being ashamed about something you really love. And I think she was asked, she was, she was asked what book she was ashamed for not having read. And she said, do you know what? I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it because it was actually really good. Hold on. Marianne Key's Guardian Shame. Okay, so I've looked this up and she is asked, yeah, the book I couldn't finish. Oh, there are oodles of them. There was a time when I felt obliged to plough on because I was afraid of abandoning the characters in some sort of literary limbo land. Now my feeling is that life is short, so I don't feel guilty about giving up on a book that simply isn't for me. And there's another bit which I think we should all maybe hold on to. The book I'm most ashamed not to have read. And she answers, ashamed? Wow. Why would I be ashamed? There are far too many shoulds attached to reading. I read for pleasure, for escape, for insight into the lives of others. I don't read to learn a lesson and my heart breaks for readers who feel a book should be worthy. Such petty, anxious snobbery is a result of people feeling intellectually insecure and there's no need for it. So that's my answer. I love that interview. And I remember Caroline O'Donoghue retweeted that interview with a comment along the lines of, it's so important we remember this. There's a very strange culture that makes us believe that reading is an intellectual sport that somehow people can win or lose, which I I totally agree. And it's really fucking annoying. That's not to say that I don't think you should read something challenging. I know um, quite a lot of people like to read a piece of fiction at the same time as reading like a challenging piece of non-fiction so that when you're kind of feeling a bit exhausted or overwhelmed, you can then dive into um, a story, uh, a made-up story. Um, But I think there's a strong emphasis on that being your choice. You know, you might not want to read nonfiction that discomforts you. So don't feel like you have to. And I think that there's been quite a lot of people actually who have said that around various books recently that are exceptionally long. Um, And 
but but exceptionally long that have won very revered prizes and so winning the prize makes you think that you know you're missing a trick if you don't read it or love it and uh, I don't think yeah I don't think that's how you should um approach literature definitely at the moment when a lot of people are struggling to read at all to be honest yeah I just think there are some books that you click with it's like people and some books that mm. you don't click with and I know lots of people who adore that Hilary Mansell book it doesn't mean it's you know it's a good or bad book or you get something or you don't get something it's just it's just you're not clicking with it at this moment in your life and I just think do you know what our time is so limited as is I remember when I was going through a particularly neurotic phase of uh, death anxiety and being very stressed out that my life was going to end at some point and I made a calculation of how many books I get to read in my entire life if I don't I can't play that game Oh, and read oh. a book a week. And let me tell you, honey bun, it ain't that many. So don't worry about giving up on Hilary Mantel. Totally fine. Read whatever you like. You've got one life. Read the books you want to read. I find that incredibly hard to get my head around because I am I am so far from having read the books that I want to read. Like, so far. It's like an impossible game, isn't it? Oh, God, mm. I'm worrying about that all over again. So, if you're feeling worried, may I recommend a manual for heartache that will help you feel better in a, in a world where you feel <laughs> overwhelmed. Thank you so much for listening to The High Low. You can get in touch with us by emailing show at gmail.com or you can tweet us at show. you gorgeous shitters. You can... You can also shop Hilo merchandise at thehiloshop.com and 100% of profits go to charity. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.